Scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 14. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. I'm Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and we're glad that you could join us here today for Sunday service, especially if you're joining us for the first time. Uh, we're really glad that you can make it, especially with the weather outside. Um, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, uh, we've been in, for the past six weeks, um, a sermon series called The Ten Commandments, and today is the seventh week, and we'll be covering the seventh commandment, uh, you shall not commit adultery. But before we get into this, just wanted to, again, remind us of the kind of tone and the kind of attitudes that we're supposed to have when we approach the commandments in the Bible. Because at first hand, it could seem a little bit um, impersonal. Uh, it's just a bunch of rules or policies governing those religious people. Uh, but in fact, these commandments are given by, yes, a master, a ruler, a sovereign on high to the people that he claims for himself but he also invites us to call him Father. Father. And so these commandments um, are uh, less about keeping speed limits, even though they're important, but it's more so and moreover about a father who wants good house rules in place for his children. Uh, he says that you are mine, you belong to me, I'm your father. Uh, you're my child, and I love you. All of you are. And so if we are going to be in the same household together, well, I need to call this meeting and let us know and remind us about what these house rules are uh, for our house so that, you know, there's no jumping on the bed, there's um, a healthy curfew, and there's going to be sharing and a giving, and that's kind of the heart of our God when he gives us these commandments. And so that's the attitude that we should have when we approach uh, the law. And so with that, uh, again, the seventh commandment, uh, the, the commandment at hand, you shall not commit adultery. Simply, the definition of adultery is sex with another person's spouse or another's betrothed. Um, and of course, we don't use the word betrothed these days. It's uh, simply fiancé, right? Your spouse or your fiancé. And if someone has sex with them, they committed adultery against you. And then a second meaning is also the enterprise of harlotry or the business of prostitution. And the Bible uses those uh, definitions interchangeably uh, throughout uh, the scriptures. Now, uh, sex uh, outside the marriage is pervasive in culture because I think it's encouraged in culture. It's pervasive in culture because it's encouraged in culture. And I didn't know before this past week in preparation for the sermon today, but there are websites, I don't know if you knew, but there are websites where married people can go on, create an account, uh, write up a profile so that they can connect and hook up with other married people with similar profiles. I don't know if you knew that, but there are such websites out there and they have slogans uh, like, life is short, so have an affair. I mean, that's just what's on the first page of the website. And I didn't go on the website. I read an article about this, which is how I know, just for clarification. Uh, 
You know, sex is everywhere, and sex is available, it seems like, to anyone and everywhere, even to married people outside of their own marriage. But, you know, actually, the problem isn't. The problem isn't that there is sex everywhere. Um, and as a Christian, I can confidently say that that's a good thing, that there's sex everywhere, if only, if only people were having sex in the way that God wants us to have sex. There's a problem when we misuse and mishandle um, sex in, in the way that God wants us uh, to. And so the Christian view actually has a very positive view of sex. We don't think of sex as promiscuous, but we're not prude about sex either. We don't think that sex is liberal or conservative. Uh, the Christian shouldn't shy away from the topic of sex. God created sex, and thus it is good. Uh, sex as a, for the Christian is for just as much procreation as it is for recreation. But God wanted it to be practiced in the safety and protection of covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And we know how good sex is for those of us who are married. And when we take something so, so good and so powerful and we mishandle or misuse it uh, for selfish reasons, self-gratification reasons, in a way that God did not intend, it will surely render disaster. And as David Hume once said, the corruption of the best things give rise to the worst. And adultery is perhaps one of the most heinous misuses of God's good gift and plan for sex. Now, there's a lot that we could say about adultery and the surrounding topics, including intimacy and relationship, man and wife, human sexuality, all from the scriptures, uh, more than we can cover today. Uh, but we want to talk on it in the following three ways. Uh, we want to talk about the magnitude of adultery, uh, the restoration from adultery, and the guarding against adultery. So the magnitude of it, the restoration from it, and the guarding against it. Let's first start with the magnitude of adultery. See, the sin of adultery is a really, really big one. It's a big one. And when I say that, I don't mean to say that it's actually more important than the other commandments. But it is more serious than the other commandments because of the magnitude of its fallout and consequences. And uh, just want to go over four reasons for why the Bible teaches that adultery is a really, really big sin. First of all, when you break this commandment, when you commit adultery, you're breaking more than just this commandment. Uh, because think about it. If you commit adultery, you are stealing another person's wife or husband, right? So it's theft or stealing. And before you stole it, it was probably because you coveted it in your heart. You wanted something that you didn't have, and so you coveted. And then uh, adultery usually involves kind of a sneaking around. You don't want, obviously, the person to find out, so they're just sneaking around. You're lying. You're telling alibis. And then if you're disregarding your wedding vows um, and doing something you said you wouldn't do, that's lying, so you're lying. Um, of course, this can foster hate and resentment, which is murder, a dehumanizing of the other. And of course, this doesn't honor our parents, right? It dishonors our father and mother. And the way that this works, right, when you break the commandments, any one of them, you by default break 
commandments one and two, which is, shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not have images or engraven images, right, to worship. And so right there, you just broke most of the Ten Commandments and probably argue that you break all ten of them. Um, but in summary, one of the surest ways, one of the surest ways to not love God and to not love your neighbor is to commit this sin, to commit adultery. Uh, Pulitzer-winning journalist and essayist, and she actually had residence in uh, the mid-1900s in Greenwich Village just down the street here, Uh, but she uh, once said that physical infidelity is the signal, the notice given that all the fidelities are undermined. Meaning that when we are physically unfaithful with our spouse, it means that all these other sorts of commitments that we have elsewhere in our life has also been undermined, and I think that's true. Secondly, uh, humanly speaking, adultery does tremendous damage, and the damage done is often largely irreparable. Uh, the damage is just widespread. It's, it's, it's It's going to be everywhere in your life, and often, largely, it's going to be irreparable. Because you know that uh, on all these different kinds of fronts, adultery is going to affect in a very, very damaging way. I mean, obviously, we start relationally. Uh, There's going to be this hold and cold severing of the most intimate relationship that you knew, and and that's heartbreaking. And then sexually, there's going to be this brokenness, perhaps even embarrassment, definitely a defilement, a pollution in the marriage bed. Emotionally, there's going to be extreme pain and hurt and resulting anger and hate. And any, in, in, in case you've harbored ever hate in your heart, I mean, it's, absolute, it's absolutely a burden. Um, it's baggage on your heart. It's weight, and, and, and you'll just carry around the weight wherever you go. Psychologically, there's going to be this distrust now, and one of two things can happen here. You can either develop this inordinate sense of entitlement, like I deserve better than you and from everybody else because I've been hurt, and you can become a little bit more brazen in your attitude towards, well, pretty much everything, or you can develop this inordinate sense of insecurity. Uh, You're a wounded bird. And so you can't trust anymore, and you're afraid to get close to anyone, and you feel insecure about the relationships in your life. Socially, of course, um, if adultery is found out, it's very public, and all your friends will find out, maybe even your coworkers. Um, morally, uh, people will now judge you more harshly. Uh, they'll judge your character um, and your ability to make good decisions. Sociologically, then, Um, if there were kids involved, right, they'll feel like you cheated on them, even though obviously it wasn't directly to your children, but they'll say mommy cheated on us or daddy cheated on us. And then, of course, legally, there could be repercussions too. I don't know if you guys knew this, but in our country, adultery is illegal, and you could be uh, sentenced to up to one year in jail for committing adultery in your marriage, Um, and it's classified in the state of New York as a Class B misdemeanor, uh, Section (laughs) 255.17. It's the equivalent of multiple organ failure in your body. 
everything will go wrong and the damage is going to be extensive and comprehensive. Thirdly, um, so irreparable are the damages that the Bible actually allows for divorce if there's adultery that's committed in the marriage. And let me tell you guys, be really clear about this. God hates divorce. He says it in Malachi 2.16, and I hate divorce. So if it's something that God hates so much, why does he allow divorce under even adultery? Well, there's this place in Matthew 19 where the Pharisees came up to Jesus to test him, and they asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered very uh, kind of quotably, everyone knows this. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his, mother and his, mo- uh, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever, therefore, God has joined together, let no man separate. And then the Pharisees aren't uh, quite satisfied with that, and they uh, ask a follow-up question, and they ask, so why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And why did Moses give us specific instructions on how to divorce? And Jesus answers, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. It was because of the hardness of your heart Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But it wasn't the case, and it wasn't supposed to be like this. You know why God allows for divorce and adultery? Because in and of our own resources and strength, we can't come back from divorce. I mean, we can't come back from adultery. We can't come back from it. The damages are so extensive that in our sinful nature, we just can't. I mean, we won't be able to get images out of our head, no matter how many sorries were given, no matter how many times a forgiveness was offered. We just can't come back from it. And that's why, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed it. But it's not what God wanted, and it wasn't so from the beginning. And so the logic is simple. God hates divorce, and he also hates the thing that allows for divorce, and so he absolutely hates adultery. And finally, and maybe this is uh, maybe uh, the big punchline in this first section, and it's this. Adultery is the anti-gospel. Adultery is the anti-gospel. No, there's a third definition for adultery as it's used in the scriptures, and it's in the figurative sense here. And the definition of adultery in this figurative sense is apostasy, which is the renouncing of your faith. If you're an apostate, you renounce your faith, essentially spit on the face of Jesus and renounce the faith. That's what apostasy is. Uh, It's the ultimate betrayal. It's a renouncement of sacred vows. It's the antithesis of everything that the gospel is about. So someone who commits adultery willingly, and it's willingly every time, is someone who is in serious breach of the holy sanctity of covenant love and commitment. It's a figurative spitting on gospel love. 
But at this point, lest you be tempted to think you're safe. Uh, maybe you're thinking at this point, you know, I'm good on this one. Check. Uh, maybe you're saying, thank God I haven't committed this one. Uh, no one can really say that they haven't committed adultery. In fact, all of us have. And how do I know this? Because it says it in the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 5, that if you look on a man's wife with even lustful intention, you're already committing adultery with her in your heart. All of us are culprit for this sin. We're sexually unrighteous before God on this one, all of us. Because if you've ever had lustful thoughts or inklings, you've committed adultery. We've committed adultery. And no one can claim, no one, not even one sexual righteousness before God because of this. And really, when it comes to our relationship with God, the Bible talks about it in a number of ways in the scriptures, um, father and son relationship, mother, hen, and chicks relationship, master and servant relationship. But one of the most profound ways in which the Bible talks about our relationship with God is as a bridegroom is wed to his bride. As a bridegroom is wed to his bride. And God is one who is able to speak authoritatively on this matter because God knows all about adultery, all too well, in fact. Not because he was ever an adulterer himself, but because he was cheated on by us. Spiritually speaking, we cheated on God, our most excellent husband, in Ezekiel 16, you'll find a story where God is going to liken the unfaithfulness of Israel um, to him. And he talks about how there was this baby that was left for dead, wallowing in its own birth blood. The cord wasn't even cut, and that baby was just good as dead um, in the field. Uh, but God passes by, and he prophesies to this baby, live prophesies, live. And when the baby came of age for love, God takes this baby and cleans it up and takes her into his home and sees her grow and raises her. And when the baby came of age for love, it says, God spread his garment over her and clothed her and entered into covenant with her. And it says in the scriptures that he made her beautiful before all the nations and for the nations to see. But then she trusted in her own beauty and played the whore, it says, and went after passerbyers. And in just one of the saddest lines in the scriptures, um, God says, And your beauty became his. What's worse is. You know, whereas prostitutes actually get money for their services? Well, it says in the scriptures, Israel uh, paid money for lovers. They didn't even get anything in return. So, so you're, you're even worse than prostitutes, God says to Israel. And in verse 38, God says, And I will judge you then as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And so I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy will depart from you. 
That last verse, and so I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy will depart from you. Satisfy my wrath on you? Yeah, God is perfectly justified in his holy wrath towards sinners, and, and that's kind of in a legal sense. Sinners are like those who have committed adultery, and they are sentenced to even way more than a year, but just to eternal life without God. That's the penal bit. But the second bit is, and my jealousy will depart from you. It's more on a relational front. Because uh, all throughout the scriptures, God tells us that he is a jealous God, that he loves us, that he just absolutely loves us and, and longs to be with us in intimate relationship. But he says that my jealousy will depart from you, meaning that I am not going to want you anymore. I'm not going to long for you anymore. My jealousy will depart from you. You see, we're all unchaste and sexually unrighteous and unfaithful before a holy God, just like Israel was. And our punishment should have been God's wrath and eternal separation from God's love. So how do we come back from this? Because this is our predicament. All of us were in this place once. But despite our wretched sexual unrighteousness and infidelity to God, in the greatest love story told. And this isn't just a story told from tradition or mythology, but this is a story told that is historic. It's a historic story where God takes a sexually broken people and makes them his beautiful bride again. Now, how does he do that? I turn our attention, I turn our attention to John 8, where uh, there's that story of the woman caught in adultery. You'll remember uh, the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman who was caught in the act of adultery before Jesus and asks Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Uh, the law says, actually, we can stone her to death, and that's just because that's what the law says. Well, what do you say? And you find Jesus writing something on the ground, and then finally he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first one to cast the stone. And one by one, starting from the eldest of the Pharisees and the scribes to the youngest of them, one by one, they just leave the scene until there's just Jesus and the woman. And the woman is standing before the one person who actually could have cast the stone because he was sinless. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the woman says, no one, Lord, neither do I condemn you then. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And Jesus pardons this woman. See, this woman should have paid with her life for her sin of adultery, but later we actually see Jesus on the cross paying the penalty of death for her with his life. And you notice something that happens. Uh, the adulterer trades places with Jesus on the cross because it should have been the adulterer and the adulteress who should have been on that cross would have been punished for their sin. But in the scandal of grace, Jesus takes the place, the place of condemnation and shame and punishment of death in the place of an adulterer and an adulteress. This was God's plan all along to make an adulterous bride 
his beautiful bride again. There is grace to us in Christ, and we can be restored and made beautiful again in the love and sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, in light of the gospel, this good news that we were once an adulterous bride, but now made a beautiful bride of Christ. There are things that we can do now to guard ourselves against adultery, and that's what we'll close with here. I uh, just want to uh, address certain populations of our congregation here as we get into this last section. There are ways that God will enable us to rule the impulse of sex for his glory. God's going to enable us in certain ways. Uh, for some of us, it's going to be uh, in the way of continence, which means this ability to exercise restraint. Um, and you'll do it for the Lord's sake. Uh, Matthew 19 says, Some eunuchs were, were by birth, other eunuchs were made by men, uh, and others who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about in the spiritual sense here. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. This isn't going to be for the vast majority of us, actually. Um, some of us, though, will be enabled by God with the gift of continence, this, this ability to restrain ourselves, and you'll be a eunuch for the kingdom of God, which is for his glory, and that's, and that's a marvelous gift to have. Uh, but for the rest of us, God gives marriage. God gives marriage to the rest of us. Uh, Paul instructs us in his letters to the Corinthians that if you are going to burn with passion, and that's his word, if you're going to burn with passion, it's better to get married because you're going to be tempted in all sorts of ways unless you're, unless you're married. And Paul further instructs that even once you're married, that you shouldn't deny each other. Sexually, you can't deny each other. And so if he's done something wrong, um, you know, you've heard it said somewhere in culture, oh, well, he's not getting any tonight or something like that. Uh, yeah, that, that doesn't happen in Christian marriage. Well, it shouldn't uh, because Paul instructs married people, don't deny each other because in the one place where sex is sanctioned and encouraged, it's being denied to each other, there could be great temptation uh, to seek sex outside of that marriage. And so this is a really important one for married folks. But again, for married folks, just to be balanced with this, this is not a license uh, to, uh, for um, a spouse tonight to say, uh, you, you remember what Brian said. <laughs> because actually sex is going to be the evidence or the expression of an already good relationship. Having a lot of sex in your marriage is not what's going to make your marriage good, but if there is a lot of sex present and a lot of good sex present, it means that your relationship is good. Does that make sense? And so it's not about, all right, like we got to make this relationship good here because it's not. No, if it's already good, there'll be sex that's present. Um, for some of us, it'll be continence. For the rest of us, it's going to be marriage. For all of us, it'll be praying and guarding ourselves and each other. Uh, I had a professor in seminary who once told me that, Brian, it's, it's not that we will not. 
but it's that we must not. And that's the kind of attitude that we need to have in our prayers, that it's not that, oh, you know what, I'm above and beyond this one. I have the strength to not commit this one. It's not that, but it's that we can't let this happen. We can't. We absolutely can. And that's got to be the fervor in your prayers as you pray. And also, we need to guard each other. We need to guard each other in this family um, for purity's sake. Uh, that means we need to be careful with one-on-ones with the opposite gender, especially if you know they are married or getting married. It's a way to guard each other. Um, and it's about taking the advice of the future Ted telling his children on how I met your mother uh, when he said, nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Nothing happens uh, that's good after 2 a.m. And, of course, we have to modify that, of course, right? Um, a lot of bad things could also happen before 2 a.m. as well. Um, the point, is, I, I would just say nightfall, um, not to be uh, legalistic about this, uh, but you know what I'm saying. Um, there, there, there are certain hours of the day, there are certain periods in our social life where this kind of thing is more of a temptation um, than at other times. And so... Heed future Ted's advice to his children. Uh, it means not drinking too much. It's, it, it's about guarding our friends, and we should be going out and having fun with our friends. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. What I am saying is that we need to guard each other against that, that drink that that friend shouldn't have had. We're talking about that drink that tipped them over to lose their inhibitions. We're talking about that drink and guarding our friends against that drink. But usually that drink was led to because of the drink before that and before that. And so we, we need to guard each other against this, help each other out. It means perhaps dressing modestly so that we're protecting our brothers and sisters eyes so they're not distracted. And of course, this means abstaining from sex before marriage. There's a quote in the booklet for you guys. Joe Carter um, wrote a piece called The Premarital Infidelity and the Single Christian. And he writes this, the duties of a husband to be sexually faithful, therefore, would extend not just from the present when we cleave together in, in a one flesh union and future throughout our marriage, but also backward into the past, the time prior to our marriage or even before we meet. Under this view, premarital sexual relations become a form of premarital infidelity, for we are being unfaithful to the one we will eventually pledge emotional and sexual allegiance. And certainly, cohabitation will not help us uh, not have premarital sex. I want to uh, get a little bit more somber with us and address the population of our uh, congregation that actually may have committed this grave and serious sin. And to you, I would ask you to consider Nick Landon's quote in your booklet now. Nick Landon writes, Christians want to and do have sex before and outside their marriage it doesn't mean they're not Christians. It means that they need Christ. 
If you've committed adultery and your marriage is just on its way to shambles, um, our heart is with you. Uh, We stand with you. We love you. Um, And we don't want you to be discouraged to think that you are separated from the love of God because you committed this awful sin. Far from it if you profess the name of Christ. doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. So don't be discouraged. But it does mean that you need Christ. You need a Savior and a Redeemer. You need a healer and a restorer. And there's nothing that could separate you from his love. And though your sin is great, your Savior is greater. And he's mighty to save you. That's what you need to know. Uh, For those of us who haven't, but maybe tempted to think that, well, I would never because I'm chaste, I'm, I'm above this, I'm virtuous, I would ask you to consider T.S. Eliot's quote. I'm also found in your bulletin. He says this, I am not concerned with how people behave, but with what they think of themselves in their behavior. And I believe that the man who thinks himself virtuous is in danger of damnation, whatever line of conduct he adopts. Eliot, a Christian man and writer, as we know, uh, was trying to get at the idea that moral superiority is just as damning as adultery. Self-righteousness will also keep you out of the kingdom, just as much as adultery. And so instead, our attitude should be to get rid of and to flee from youthful desires, especially images that tempt us to indiscretion. And of course, the obvious example here is pornography. For those of us who look at pornography, there's a study that was done at the University of Florida that positively correlated those who watch pornography and with those who would be unfaithful in their marriages, which would also lead to divorce. And so there's this positive correlation. If you're someone who looks at pornography, there is a greater chance for you to be unfaithful in your marriages Um, because uh, you're tempting your eyes with all sorts of things that aren't good. Habits of sexual impurity will lead to a morally shaky person in the face of a sexual opportunity outside of marriage. But it wasn't supposed to be like this from the beginning. This was not our design. Our design was for great sex within marriage, and for us to glorify God with our bodies. And by the power of the Spirit in his church, the one who gives us faith, we can aim and seek to be chaste and pure in Christ's righteousness. Let's pray.